let's bow heads in a word of prayer, and then I'll move into the teaching. Thank all of you who joined. We've got over 300 people that have signed up so far, and they're still signing up. And um, everybody can be on, of course, tonight. You'll be able to look at later if you can't. Um, we will, this session will last until 8.30. We will, I'm going to go right on through with the teaching. And at the end, I'll give you opportunity for questions and answers and opportunity for you to sow into our ministry. Uh, one of the things we do is that we do a lot in terms of international ministry. On our lifeglobal.org um, website, we have a um, prayer session where we take prayer requests from people all over the globe. And there is a language translator on our website. So uh, it's being used constantly. Right now, I think we have 40 different languages on that language translator. And we get prayer requests literally from around the world. I do um, not only teaching here with you, but I do international teaching quite a bit through many platforms like this, Zoom and other platforms that we do to get this teaching in. Your questions can be put in the chat uh, at the end. You can also uh, speak on the audio. We can let you talk and we'll be able to view your questions there also. And so there'll be various ways that you can communicate. You can also email us at drdoctordmg at gmail.com. Well, let's start off with talking about some things about eschatology. I want to start off talking really about uh, some true statements and really move into where we are in terms of uh, this overview of eschatology. Um, it, is, it is important that we see some things from certain levels and certain ideas of looking at it so that we can follow some of the leaks and things that are born. Uh, I think some of the things we're going to look at and some of the positions I'm going to take in looking at this may be new to some, maybe foreign to others. Uh, but I think that what we have to do is understand that what we're going to develop is a great exegesis. And uh, as we get into this exegesis, we're going to try to understand what it is about the end times, properly called the last days of Jesus, this period that we call between the first coming and the second coming of Christ is considered the end times or the last days. Last days beginning on the day of Pentecost will last all the way until Jesus return. So this is important that we um, understand this truth. It's so important that as we understand this truth, there are a lot of things involved. We're going to have to look at not only just the end times in general, but we're going to have to look at Israel in the end times, the church in the end times, Israel and the church in the end times, um, the terminology of the last days, uh, period of time between this whole first and second coming, as I mentioned earlier, because we live in the overlap of the ages. We live in this present evil world and we live in the coming age that is to come. So many times when I'm teaching on the kingdom of God, I share with people, um, we, the kingdom is now and will yet to come. So when we understand this whole idea of the kingdom of God, it is now, as Jesus uh, pointed out in his teaching, and it is yet to come. Since this whole arena of teaching is going to be dealing with eschatology, 
which is the study of last things. I wanted to find the teaching that I'm going to do in this area specifically to the New Testament teachings. I'm not going to deal with Daniel and the 70 week prophecy or any of the other Old Testament um, scriptures that relate to the end times. I want to deal with the teachings of Jesus. And is, there's a reason for that. Um, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, many people don't understand the Gospels are an account of Jesus' life when he was on earth. We have four Gospel writers. Uh, Paul writes accounts to the churches. He actually let us know through Paul's letter how the first apostolic churches were, that these churches, we learn a lot about the churches through the Pauline epistles. And then we get the writings of Jesus to close out the whole canon of scripture because the book of Revelation at the end is really the writings of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. People mistakenly say John wrote Revelation. He did not write Revelation. Jesus dictated Revelation to John. He told John to write all the things that are down. Revelation 1 and 1 says, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, and he gave to the angels, and the angels transmitted it to John. So the book of Revelation, the study of last things, is a continuation of Jesus' announcement of last things in the Gospels. Specifically, and we'll talk about them later, but I'm going to mention the chapters that are important for your homework and study. And that is to study Matthew's chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. These are the three places that Jesus specifically talks about the end times. They'll be on the slide later and we can look at it. One of the other things that important to talk about is the time, the time, what is these times and seasons? are really important. So I'm gonna share something that's very important to us to look at. The first is the church calendar. Many of us probably don't follow the church calendar. Those of you do, I put the colors into this chart also so you can see the colors of the church calendar, the church season. This is a liturgical calendar. The liturgical calendar begins every year during the month of November on the first Sunday of Advent. And it goes through the symmetry of Christ the King. It ends with the birth of Christ. So the church calendar begins in November, we're saying that, and it goes all the way through to take us around the year. These are the very colors that are written. So why are you saying something about the church calendar? Because the season of Advent has to do with the coming of Christ, his first coming leading up also to his second coming, and specifically the second week of Advent, which is this week, on the second Sunday, really relates to the second coming of Christ. It is the Advent season. Advent season is the coming of Christ, and of course we're going to Christmas, and then uh, of course um, Epiphany, and Lent season, Holy Week. This is all summing around in terms of what we call the church calendar. So there are seasons. And I think it's important that I talk about these seasons 
those of you that have been a part of my back to basics class understand about seasons because I talked about how God moved in patterns and principles. So those patterns and principles are what we see God moving in. So we have to be aware that there is a uh, seasonal move of looking at and trying to get to this whole idea of the church through a church calendar. Now, the one that's also more important beside the church calendar is the Jewish calendar. Uh, I decided to do this by showing in the middle, in the black, our calendar uh, months. And then on the outer circle are the Jewish calendar months. Around these are the fall Jewish festival seasons and the spring Jewish festival seasons. Now, the reason why these seven seasons are so important, and yes, we have one more that's added in, it's called the Feast of Hanukkah, which we're in right now, which takes us back to uh, 195 BC with the Maccabeans. This is a period between the Testaments in a testamental period, we call, and uh, it was when Rome was destroyed or not wrong, but Jerusalem was trampled and destroyed then. And of course, uh, the Festival of Lights has to do with the candles that kept burning, even due to all of the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem, and they never went out. And so uh, Hanukkah is the Festival of Lights, and it's so important. These seasons are God's calendar seasons. He instituted these seasons. He operates through these seasons. And so we need to be aware of the fall feasts and the spring feasts to understand how his coming and how his second coming is going to play a role. Um, and I'll leave that for now because we're going to talk some more about these seasons. So I wanted you to be aware of the church calendar, where the church is, and this is how the church evolves itself as well as being aware of the Jewish calendar, because there's a lot in the Jewish calendar that we've got to see in biblical prophecy that takes us into understanding between where the church is and where the Jewish people are, to get this synergy between the church and Israel, as Paul points out, that we are joint heirs together, so that there's something that begin to happen that moves us into this understanding of moving between the church and Israel. So as I mentioned earlier, our focus is gonna be Jesus talking in the gospels, Matthews 24 and 25, the two chapters there. We'll spend some time during the last session actually digging into the uh, predictions of Jesus and what he talked about in terms of the birth pains and the signs that he was talking about. So we're gonna talk a lot about that and spend some time in this period of time to see how all of this stuff comes to bear. So that um, in the conversation I do on the end times with Bishop Sharon, we talk about a historical perspective and I talk about the calendar perspective here. Many of us try to deal with this whole calendar, try to predict when Christ is coming, yet he said, no man knows the day nor the hour when he shall come. So we have to really look at it from several standpoints to look at this whole idea of end time expectation. Uh, and just because they are, let me just say this as a word of caution, just because 
there are current events that seem as if the end times is probably at a hit. Let's not confuse fulfillment of prophecy with a foretaste of prophecy. Foretaste of prophecy doesn't mean that the prophecy has been fulfilled. It means that there is a foretaste of the prophecy. So we want to focus on Jesus and what he says in the Gospels, Matthew's chapter 24 and chapter 25, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. All three of these synoptic Gospels, and the reason why we call them synoptic, because they all give a different angle of the life of Christ. And so they can be compared together. We can pull out details because some sometimes give details that the other one doesn't. These three Gospels are considered the synoptic Gospels. I didn't talk a lot about the church calendar and how it relates in terms of the Gospels uh, in year A, B, and C. It works on a three-year cycle. And so as it works on a three-year cycle, a Gospel is read during each particular year. Uh, those of us who are liturgical are probably familiar with the cycle of church events and the colors that are worn in liturgical uh, ceremonies. Um, there are liturgical and non-liturgical uh, churches within uh, where we are. Just like in our Jewish tradition, we see two calendars that I introduce you to because you're already familiar with your Julian calendar. We're familiar with the events of January to December, year after year. Even though there's a gap in our calendar too, we lost days uh, right in the middle of uh, in the 17th century, but um, we recovered. And of course, our, our modern calendar events shows a, a leap year because uh, every four year, we, uh, we see this leap year. And so we, we see what's going on and we relate ourselves from that. Paul gives us some insight on the end times too in his epistles. And Jesus, of course, sums it up by writing what he wants to say in the book of Revelation and what we call the apocalypse. Now, an apocalypse is an unveiling. It really means to take the cover back so you can see how things really are. It's a peep at the reality as God sees the world, not as we see it. An apocalypse is an unveiling. Sometimes we get the word apocalypse mixed up with the Apophica. Apophica is the hidden or secret books, the 14 to 15 books that are, that are in the Old Testament, not, not part of the Old Testament canon. We call those the Apophica. They're the hidden or secret books. But the apocalypse, in which we'll talk about in a little while, has to do with the books or the unveiling of God. Here's the problem. Two-thirds of the prophecies of the New Testament deal with eschatology. Two-thirds of prophecies of the New Testament deal with eschatology. Wow, that's something within itself. And so we see that there are tremendous things that we need to look at in terms of this. Now let's define eschatology itself. End times better known as eschatology or Christian eschatology is that branch of systematic theology that studies the Christian beliefs concerning the final events and God's ultimate purposes. 
it is defining an apocalypse that there are things are going to get worse and worse, but they're going to get better. That's why Jesus in the Gospels called things birth pains, because after the birth pains, it seems like it's painful, but there's going to be a glorious age that's going to be birthed from these birth pains, from the evil age we in to the coming age that God is going to purify the earth so that there's a whole coming age. So the idea of eschatology or Christian eschatology is the is a study of Christian beliefs concerning final events. God's given us a foretaste. He's telling us everything, giving us the whole outline of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And it's interesting that it's so confusing in our day and time that we have so much to talk about and to deal with in terms of this subject. Well, let's talk a little bit more. In Christian theology, Christian theology, Eschatology studies the conclusion of God's purposes. It is the conclusion. God began his purpose in Genesis. He concludes his purpose in Revelation. And therefore, the concluding destiny of created things, and especially of man and of the church, according to the purposes of God. And notice I keep going back to times. The two words you're going to have to keep in your, in your study so you can get a clue as to what's going on. That is times, and generation. Those two words are going to become very important for you to understand this whole idea of eschatology and where it fits into the end times and how we deal with it. Even though this study in systematic theology of the study of the last things, the church is so divided on this particular issue. It is really divided. So much confusion about eschatology of what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say and how the end is going to be and how the end is going to be caved out that it's just so confusing it is hard to mass between the mass of confusion between eisegesis what people insert into the text and exegesis what we pull out of the text so it's important for us to look at how all of this comes about uh, my history and background from all this goes all the way back to 1975 when I really started getting into uh, eschatology and eschatology viewpoints and began to see some things. And I guess my viewpoint became an, a minority viewpoint because of seeing some things that were in line. But I kept teaching. I kept talking about it through the years. And I'm at this point now that I'm just going to bring out what I know God is saying. But we cannot be too dogmatic about eschatology because prophetic landscape changes all the time. And there are things that seem to rattle the prophetic landscape, even as I speak, as to what's going on, what's taking place, how those things are coming about in terms of the landscape. But there's also a, a look at personal eschatology I want to mention here as a side note. There are both personal and corporate aspects to the biblical portrait of eschatology. On the personal side, everybody will experience physical death and the intermediate state. I know, I know, don't even say it. Some of us feel like we won't experience physical death because we will be taken up. But on the personal side, all people will experience physical death and intermediate state. By and large, all people can count on 
going through the experience of physical death, Hebrews 9, 27, followed by conscious existence throughout an interim period until the resurrection of the body. And that's a powerful statement to talk about personal eschatology, because this talks about the whole idea of death, what happens in an immediate state in terms of death until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of this we find out in the book of Revelation, which is so important. It's interesting as the book of Revelation is being written and John is writing down and seeing all these awesome uh, analogy of symbols and signs that he's seen, he is told 14 times to keep writing, 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 because um, he's recording what Jesus is revealing to him and that he wants to let us know the outcome of everything. This is how it's going to, when forget how what it looks like, begin to focus on what God said it's going to be like. So it, it, it changes constantly. And Jesus gave us some birth pains. Then he gave us signs of the end. He gives four specific signs in Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21 to give us an idea of what things must happen before the end come and before he actually comes in terms of what we call his second coming. So there are various controversies concerning the order of events leading to and following the return of Christ. I told you that it is a mixture of various orders of where people go in terms of what's essential and what's not essential and what people believe and more arguments are done inside the church about the second coming than they are done outside the church. But we've got to get to the heart of two things. One thing is very important is the credibility of the Bible itself. And then the second thing is very important we have to get to is the credibility of Jesus Christ himself. Both of those are at the clutch of this overview of the end times. That's why I want to focus on Jesus. Because one thing, when critics hit the Bible and try to disclaim uh, the things of the Bible, they always go to things about eschatology and whether or not Jesus really said the things he said. Did they, are they coming to pass or did they come to pass? Or are these events really there? So the religious significance of these event, events for Christians are discussed by Christians under this rubric cube, this whole rubric of eschatology. And so I keep pointing out this word because it is a division of systematic theology and it is the study of last things. It is probably one of the most curious subjects in theology yet one of the most misunderstood subjects in theology. But there are five essential eschatological teachings of scripture. We have to get these, and we, and we all agree, no matter what your position, and we're gonna talk about the positions in a minute, we all agree of these five eschatological teachings of scripture. We all agree that there will be a future bodily return of Christ. There will be a general resurrection, there will be judgment. There will be eternal life for the righteous. And there will be eternal punishment 
for the unrighteous. These are what we call five essential eschological teachings of scripture. You must believe these are important. These are what we call essential teachings. One must believe this about the coming Christ, that the future bodily return of Christ, Jesus said he was coming again. The angels declared in Acts 1, in verse 11, that the same Jesus you see going up, he's going to come back in like fashion. And, and then Paul talks about this whole idea of the resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15, this whole general resurrection, that there's going to be judgment. There's going to be eternal life for the righteous. We see that throughout the promise of scripture, and that's going to be eternal punishment for the unrighteous. So we've got these two motifs that are together, eternal, eternal, which means it's going to be forever, e eternal life, eternal punishment. Both of these bring us to the point of understanding uh, where that we all agree on these five essentials that they must take place. These things must happen for end times event. So we find something that we agree on. If we don't agree on everything, that's important. But the end time intrigue is so diverse. It is interesting. Some of you probably recognize some of the, the images I put up here. Um, one of the first books in our modern times that seemed to have uh, stirred our mind on end times is a book called The Late Great Planet Earth uh, by a writer by the name of uh, Hal Lindsey back in the 70s, 1970. And um, he also promoted teachings that he got out of the Dallas Theological Seminary which was teachings uh, relating to the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. So for more than 2,000 years now, people have wondered about the events of the end times and when would Jesus return? And we get all excited about date setters. When um, somebody sets a date, we gravitated to us, even though Jesus keeps saying, nobody knows the date of the time, which the Father has put in his hand. Um, but end time ideas have filled books, movies, and even supermarket tabloids. Probably one of the most important ones in our day is the Left Behind series. Um, and so that Left Behind series book and the movies that came about show that there's a pre-tribulational rapture and that people will be taken up and some people will be left behind. Uh, some of you may remember, it wasn't that long ago, but over 21 years ago, we had the Y2K crisis and um, everybody thought that was gonna be the end of the world that going into 2000, the computers weren't gonna flip over and that this Y2K issue, people wrote books on it. They weren't all Christian bookshelves, it was in the world. Christ is gonna come before the end of 2000 because someone went back and said there, 6,000 years of, of human history, uh, 2,000 years between Adam to Moses, between Moses to Christ is another 2,000 years. So between Christ and the second coming will be another 2,000 years. So the year 2000 became important looking at the second coming. Wrong, wrong, wrong. All these formula things have proved not to be important or significant for us as we look at where we are in terms of end time events. They have not put out, but they make interesting conversations and analogies that people are predicting when the rapture and, and so people who are in what we call the imminent return of Christ are saying because he says come quickly but there's nothing the next event on the pathetic calendar is the return of Christ uh, I beg to differ there is not an event last event or the next event on the pathetic calendar there are a few other events according to Jesus that are on the pathetic calendar that must happen before 
I don't know if I gave um, the numbers right. I preached a sermon yesterday, but I wanted to make sure I, I got the numbers right. There are 735 different predictions about the future. 596 have already come true. That's 81% of them have already come true. And they are probably about 19% that haven't come true. So there's still about 19 or 20 predictions to be fulfilled before Jesus comes back prophecies, and we're going to look at those. And with the speed of world events, though, they could happen quickly. Um, so we'll see how this all relates to two things, Israel being in trouble and the church being in trouble in terms of these end times and events that are, that are happening. Uh, five predictions in our day about current events and end times are extremely important. I probably just mentioned here um, that there are probably about 89 different international wars that are being fought anywhere around the world. Um, 36 international incidents since World War II, and, and there are wars and rumors of wars all around. Um, but there's some new events, some key um, events in the history of the world that become very important. One is the year of my birth, 1948 because that's when Israel became a nation again. And then of course, the um, other date that's important is the date 1967, right down 1948 to 1967. The birth of Israel becoming a nation again was extremely important because biblical prophecy, especially many prophets who were predicting before then, saw the church replacing Israel and never saw Israel going back into their homeland. So that became a miracle within itself when Israel goes back into its homeland in 1948. In 1967, they take back Jerusalem. So they have part of portions of Jerusalem, especially the old city part. And that becomes important seen in terms of Bible prophecy and the things that are going on. So there's some other things that are going on too. And so there are some signs of Israel that indicates that the end times are wrapping up. 1948 and 1967 are two key dates. There are some others I'll talk about in a little bit. Terms such as the millennium, the tribulation, the rapture and antichrist may be common in time words, but what do they mean? Here's some questions we must consider in our study. Will Jesus return physically and reign on earth for a thousand year period called the millennium? Will Christians go through a seven year tribulation? When will the antichrist appear? Big question. Or has that prophecy already been fulfilled? These are in time intriguing questions that we want to look at and ask over and over again as we begin to look at the scripture and the possibility of fulfillment of these scriptures and where they, where they go in terms of our in time enlightenment. When will the second coming of Christ occur? Will, will believers meet him in, in the air? Will Christians be raptured and other people left behind? What does the nation of Israel have to do with the end times? Everything. I'm going to see a lot about what's going on in terms of that. Um, it may seem 
that the church is in trouble because of the pandemic. We've had uh, persecution, diseases, the four horsemen that come out of uh, Revelation chapter six. Uh, they come from the book of Zechariah. See, you, you got to have some Old Testament context that you're going to look at, like the book of Revelation and some of the things that are going on. What does the nation of Israel have to do with the end time? So almost everything it triggered some things because the Lord had prophesied that they would he would gather them back into their homeland, and this has happened. There's some interesting events that happened as a result of that. So here's the crux of the matter. Most of us probably want to get here anyway. There are four views of end time events, four views. In the next session, I'm going to talk in detail about these view, views, what they actually teach. But in this session, I'm going to actually present these four views to us. The first view is what we call the dispensational premillennialism. It uh, emphasizes Christ's return and rapture are separate events. So those that believe in this viewpoint of dispensations, dispensational premillennialism, Christ's return and rapture are separate events. That's one viewpoint. It's extremely important. Okay, I think we're okay now. Um, so dispensational viewpoint is one viewpoint. Second viewpoint is the historical premillennialism. Christians will endure the tribulation. The, now, these are viewpoints of end times based on uh, people doing, taking their positions of looking at the scriptures and trying to figure out how these events come about. So they take, they've taken up camps. And so we see these uh, viewpoints coming about. These are, there's probably other viewpoints, but these are what we call major viewpoints. So these are the three or four major viewpoints. All millennialism, uh, no literal thousand year rule. That's amillennialism, which means no millennium at all. And then post-millennialism, Christ returns after the millennium. Now the three oldest is probably the bottom three. The new baby on site is this one, dispensational millennial or uh, premillennialism, which is only about a couple hundred years old. The rest of these go date back to the first century. So we've got uh, four views of end time events and various groups of people fit into all these four views and become very passionate about their review, their position on Christ's return. They fight each other over whose position is right. And so um, there is debate all the time of these four positions these four major positions, um, dispensational viewpoint, the historical, the millennial viewpoint, and the post-millennial viewpoint. All four of these positions are debated all the time as which one is right. So these become, so you can see that this idea of eschatology is getting tremendous treatment because as we keep going into it and as we keep looking at it, we see that there are various viewpoints that we're gonna to have to dig through all of this debris to find out exactly 
what's going on and what really should be happening that the eyes of our understanding may be open and we may be enlightened by this idea of where the church is and what is really happening. What did Jesus really say? And what did Jesus really mean when we look at these viewpoints? It becomes very important. So we've got intrigue. Here's the point. All share some key points. All these viewpoints share some key points. Jesus will come again for those who love him. Jesus calls his followers to be ready all the time. Watch and pray. No one knows the day or the hour. All of these end time, with the end times intrigue, all of these things are true. Jesus is going to come for his followers. That's what he promised to come for those who love him, who come to his followers. He's only coming for his followers. Jesus calls his followers to be ready all the time. Watch and pray. And the third point is that no one knows the day or the hour. Extremely important. So here we are. What Jesus taught about the end. Let's look at Matthew's 24. Well, let's go to Mark 13. I want to I want to talk about the end by going to Mark 13. So if you follow with me and go to Mark 13, let's um, and I know we've we've got we've actually had the same passage discussion in Matthews 24 and 25 and in Luke 21. Um, the reason why I started Mark 13 and 1 because it is here in Matthews 23, uh, he, taught, he weeps over Jerusalem and talks about the destruction of the temple. And then he begins with the questions that they ask him. But I'm going to begin at Mark 13. Uh, it's tremendously important. Um, Mark 13, verse 1, I'm reading out the New International Translation. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And, and it's so important because Herod's temple, Herod did a second temple. This was, and, and I don't have time to give you a lesson on the temple constructions, but when we go back to the tabernacle of Moses that was in the wilderness that Moses built, According to Hebrews chapter 8, we found out, and according to Exodus chapter 25, 26, and 27, that Moses built a pattern for worship of things that were in the heaven. So what Moses set up as a tabernacle, we sometimes call the tabernacle of Moses, was a replica of heavenly worship. That's extremely important. Because when the Lord brings Israel out of Egypt, he takes them into the wilderness. He gives them a moral code, what many of us may call the Ten Commandments. He gave them more codes than that. Exodus gives us the moral code. Leviticus gives us the holiness um, code. And so there is this idea of becoming holy and becoming moral together. He wanted to get them straight before he moved in the kingdom, but he gives them a glimpse in the heavenly worship by having them to perform a building, a shape of a building where worship is being duplicated in the physical, what was then currently in heaven. So when he does the holy place and the most holy place, 
he's doing a replica of heavenly worship. Hebrews 8 and 1. Well, let's let's go to Hebrews 8 for a minute. And let's let's just get some understanding of what, what is going on there. Let's hold Mark 13 for a minute. Let's go to Hebrews. Because I think it's important that you see this. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse one. Now the main point is this: the writer of Hebrews is making a point about Jesus being a high priest of a better covenant. And and now the main point is this: what we're saying is this: we do not have such a high priest who sits down at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. Every high priest was appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for the one also to have something to offer. If he was on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. So he goes on to explain this whole idea and accordance. So in verse five, he says this, they serve at the sanctuary that is a copy, a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. So the tabernacle of Moses was prepared as a, sanctuary as a copy of what was in heaven, Hebrews 8 and 5. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That's a powerful statement, a powerful text. So they kept this idea of the pattern of the tabernacle later on when, when uh, of course, David gets his vision of what his tabernacle is going to be like. He adds music and praise in his tabernacle. In Mosaic tabernacle, there was no music. There were a couple of trumpet blasts, but one trumpet blast is for war. The other trumpet blast is for worship. So they were either called to worship or called to war by a trumpet blast, but there was no music. And so, but in David's tabernacle, he set up music, which later became Solomon's temple. So what God did was put Moses' tabernacle into Solomon's temple and enlarged the whole idea of the temple. When the temple is, is um, destroyed and they go into it, the Ark of the Covenant is taken. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Eli's son is being disobedient. But the glory of God is covered by the Hebrew term kabod. And of course, what happens is the children of Israel miss this whole idea of the glory. And they don't understand what God is doing. So what God does is because the glory is gone, they tried to use the, the Ark of the Covenant in a way that wasn't consistent. And so it is now called Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed. Um, the temple comes back in once they lose the Ark of the Covenant, when they go into captivity in the Babylon, uh, it is not the same. When they come back out of captivity, they try to reconstruct the temple again. Herod builds a great temple. He's a half Jew. This is just a few hundred years before Christ comes on the scene. It becomes one of the seven wonders of the world. And that's why the disciples is making this comment about the temple and the signs, but the Jews have still rejected 
Jesus as the Messiah. So he's warned. They asked him, tell him, look how massive these stones is. What magnificent building. Look at Jesus' response in verse 2, uh, Mark chapter 13. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied, Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which was yet to come. So as he sit in verse 3 on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, see his questions, when will these things happen? And what would be the sign that all is about to be fulfilled? They asked him these questions. It is, it is really interesting. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, watch out that nobody deceives you. Many, verse six, will come in my name, claiming I am he, and he would deceive many. So he starts giving a few signs. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So the wars are not an indication he's ready to come, it's just that there are these birth pains that are getting ready to come. Uh, and of course, uh, that's where he begins to go. Nation will rise against nation, verse eight, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are all the beginning of birth pains. He said, well, okay, we're hearing about earthquakes every day. You just heard about another earthquake this morning. And so uh, all these things are, Jesus said, famines in various places, global uh, affairs of things, diseases going on, very important, but Jesus said these are just the beginning of birth pains. You ought to be on your guard, verse 9. You'd be headed over to local authorities. These were signs that he promised was going to happen to them. They're going to be flogged in synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witness to them. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. What do you mean to all nations? At that time, it probably was not that many nations in that part of the world. Um, today, we've got over uh, 270 or 80 different nations, nations birth at all times. That's a question mark there. When you're arrested, verse 11, and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Powerful. Brothers will betray brothers to death. And a father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then he comes and talks about abomination of desecration. It's going to come, that's in when the Jewish wars broke out in 66 AD, because they never accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They still was waiting for a Messiah. They, they fought with Rome which was over them for four years. And in 70 AD, the prophecy that Jesus gave about Jerusalem and the temple and no stone being left upon the order. For five months, they fought uh, and they killed 1.1 million Jews. Josephus, who was a writer and eyewitness of the story, gives a blow-by-blow affair of what happened when the Jewish temple is destroyed. And um, this was the final end. Jerusalem is treaded on the foot, which begins what we call the time 
of the Gentiles. What Jesus taught about the end time birth plans, I just read it. There'll be wars, there'll be famine, there'll be earthquakes, there'll be pestilence. Wickedness will increase. There will be fearful events and signs from heavens, cosmic events that are happening in heaven. All these things must happen before he comes, not after he comes, before he comes. So these things happen, that they come in to lighten these things. We see what's going to happen from that standpoint. People will be deceived by many. People being deceived all the time. Here's some free events that's very important. Here's what he taught about the end, birth plan. Believers in Christ will be persecuted and killed. You may not know about it, but believers are being killed all the time in various nations and countries around the world. Um, the church is not swelling as much as it used to be. Temples are closing. I mentioned all the time that the church is not swelling, but it's growing because persecution always seemed to strengthen the church. That's always been the history of the church. So believers will be witnesses of Jesus to kings. Many will turn away from the faith. It's the last days. Uh, Luke 18 and 8 says, when the son of man come, will he find faith on the earth? Uh, there will be betrayals by parents, brothers, and friends. I just finished reading that. Jesus said, things are going to get worse, and they're going to get worse, and they're going to get worse, and then suddenly they get better. That's the whole idea of the apocalypse, that things are going to get worse, and they're going to get worse, but then suddenly they're going to get better. So we go from bad to worse. It's interesting. This is what Jesus taught about the end time, the signs. Jews will be surrounded by armies. This happened in 70 AD. The abomination that causes desolation will stand in the holy place. Uh, they went they desecrated the temple and went in. And so Jesus thought it'd be trampled on by Gentiles. The Roman army um, devastated the temple, tore it all down, um, made it so that the Jews, which were rebelling, getting in trouble, wouldn't give it. Which is the interesting part when this came about in 70 AD, the Christians ran to the hills. Jesus told them, said, when you see these things, flee to the mountains. They fled to the mountain, but the Jews stayed in the city. And so in the walled city were mostly Jews, but all the Christians had left, heeding the words of Jesus, and ran to the mountains. So they did not face the destruction as many of the Jews. This was really the final point that separated Jews and Christians in the first century. Um, this idea of trying to come together, Paul kept trying to bring this synergy between Jews and Christians, and that even the Jewish economy, God was not replacing them. He was disciplining them. In fact, if you read Romans 11, he, he points out that the Gentiles shouldn't get so arrogant because God could do to them what he did to Israel. So in terms of giving this final judgment to Israel and dispersing them and having the church come forth, the Gentiles now, now ruling, uh, when in essence, what we were trying to do throughout the, uh, the first generation of, of Jews and Christians were to bring them together in some synergy so that they both would be together and we bring something developed in that. It's some key cosmic events that's got to happen. Jesus taught about the end, the signs of the end. The sun will darken, the moon will not shine, the stars will fail. Some sort of cosmic eclipse is going to happen before he comes. False 
prophets will perform signs and miracles. Just because you see somebody manifesting spiritual gifts doesn't mean that they are necessarily right, or they may give in some specific prophecy or, or some word of knowledge. Jesus pointed that out in Matthew 7. And they shall come in that day and say, did not do many marvelous works. And he says, depart from me. Severe ocean activity will disturb the nations. Um, we've had tsunamis, um, earthquakes, famines, these things are going on. People will be terrified of the events of the time. Uh, key Bible signs, what Jesus taught about the end, the signs of the end. Jesus will appear in the sky. At, at the time, it seems to be the worst. Jesus then appears. The trumpet will sound. Angels will gather God's elect. If you read Matthew 24, keep going on down, verse 31, you'll see this whole pattern of what Jesus said is the pattern of the events. Um, Jesus said, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, only the father, Matthew 24, 36. Why do we still keep getting excited about people who predict dates and times about when Jesus is coming? When this particular passage says, Matthew's 24, 36, nobody knows the day or the time. Yet we get all excited because somebody said Jesus is coming nine o'clock in the morning on Friday. And everybody starts packing up and getting ready to go. Because somebody predicts, oh yeah, it's coming. Nothing else can happen before Jesus comes. Jesus is coming. No. But because of the increase of weakness, the love of more will grow cold. But he who stands firm, Jesus said to the end, Matthew's 24, 12 through 13, will be say stand fast until the end timing events is so important we misconstrue because we keep falling for these false predictions about the coming of christ because we're using the wrong calendar we're using the wrong calendar i just introduce you to the church calendar the jewish calendar and it's god's calendar here um, are we at in terms of god's blueprint and his calendar in Genesis 1.14, it says that he puts the, the astrological signs in the heavens for times and seasons. And so God is working on patterns, symbols and patterns, and we keep missing them because we keep trying to be exact and literal. What, here's what Paul taught about the end times. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, the Lord will descend the dead in Christ will rise first. The living will be caught up with him in the clouds to meet the Lord and will be with him forever. That's Paul's teaching on the end times. And sometimes we get confused because of Paul's teaching. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Don't believe those who say the day of the Lord has already come. <laughs> the day of the Lord will be preceded by, and look at Paul, he's echoing the words of Jesus, rebellion. The revelation of the man of lawlessness. Now, here we come with this man of sin. I told them after years teaching on back to basis that I was going to hold off the, the, the thing about the man of iniquity until I did this teaching on end times. So we'll talk more about this in a little while. The man of sin. Paul taught this. The man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over God, set himself up in God's temple, proclaim that he is God. We reveal when the one holding him back is taken out of the way. <laughs> and so many interpretations to that statement. And so everybody goes all around trying to interpret 
trying to do things, trying to figure out when is the end time coming, and we keep missing them all. He says, Paul says, when this man of lawlessness will be revealed, he'll be accompanied by a satanic counterfeit miracle. So he'll have the false prophet. Uh, this, this unholy trinity is presented in the book of Revelation. Uh, deceive those who do not love the truth, be overthrown and destroyed when Jesus comes. All of this will be set up. Um, and so I thank you for your time in this. I'll open the time right now for questions and answer. If you have a question, raise your hands. The chat, if you'd like to speak, just raise your hand and I'll hit your button and allow you to get your audio on so you can talk. Um, there's a lot in here and a lot to impact. I want to give you a general overview at first and then we'll deal with Pacific overview uh, at the end of this and how it comes about. Um, So thank you, I appreciate it. Somebody said thank you for the general overview. Are there any questions or comments about the overview? Um, I kind of gave you a general, I'm gonna get more specific next week. Uh, yeah, I see a couple of hands. Um, okay, Figaro here, I'm allowed you to talk. There you go. Oh, Joyce Figaro, there he is. Did I hit your button right? You have to unmute yourself. And then you can talk. If you like to talk, you raise your hand, you unmute yourself. I got a hand there with Ron Johnson. I, I muted you. You have to mute yourself so you can talk or even put it in the chat. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Go ahead. Um, Earlier on in one of the slides you were mentioning, you, you said that the prophetic landscape is, uh, is fluid. Um, yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Because I was thinking that, you know, the prophetic things would be, uh, would be constant, um, not contingent upon anything, but you mentioned that it was fluid. Could you elaborate on that? Um, yes, I'm, I meant by that because Things are changing all the time. Events are happening. Um, there, is, there is this idea of patterns that I mentioned earlier with patterns that, that the Lord is bringing and pulling together. And the reason why, and I, and I like to use the term fluid, only because there are shifting and flows that are coming together in perfect that we're not prepared for because we keep looking one way and things happen another. And what we may assume is going to happen one way winds up happening another way. One of the biggest things, and that's why I mentioned two dates, 1948 and 1967, because 1948, nobody, nobody knew that Israel was going to be a nation again. All the prophetic viewpoints on Israel, that they were out for the count after 70 AD and that they would never come back into their homeland. Um, and that's very interesting, yet supernaturally, in 1948, they go back into their homeland. And so everybody had to re-scramble and figure out what they're doing in Bible prophecy. What does this mean, Israel back in its homeland? They never saw Israel coming back in its homeland. So there are some things that are shaking up 
our ideas of what we think Bible prophecy is all about. And I think that we have to look at it from this idea of, of it being, and I like the term fluid, um, because it's changing, also. the landscape is changing, even as I speak. There are things that are happening now that are, that are a little different. I'll talk about some of them. There are forecasts of events that we haven't foreseen because we keep looking one way and God's dealing another way. So things we might think are conclusive and at the end, there are some things that really must come about before it is actually ended. Did I see another hand? You can roll here. I just ask you to unmute your mic and you can talk. If you unmute your mic and I unmute it, we're okay. Thank you. Everybody that's given information. <laughs> do I think COVID is one of the four horsemen? No, I do not. COVID is not one of the four horsemen of the book of Revelation. It is um, the whole book of Revelation when it talks about one of its horses being pestilence. It is not COVID. That's not confuse local events with prophetic events. Uh, I think that one of the things we have, we always keep looking at the newspaper for an indication of Bible prophecy. And so we get this idea of newspaper events. We watch a newspaper instead of reading the Bible and see how God says, or Jesus said these events are coming about. The credibility of the Bible is at stake. And so what Jesus predicts, for instance, one of the things that's at credit and that Jesus criticized for a lot is that he said all these things must come to pass uh, in that particular generation. You look at Matthew 24, he says that all these things are coming back for that generation in the next 40 years. The, the thing that really happened in the next 40 years was the destruction of the temple. Um, it is true that most of the first century Christians had a viewpoint of eschatology that Jesus would probably come back in their lifetime. I think every generation has this blessed hope and for the glorious appearing of Christ. And we all think, so when we talk about the end times, we all think we are the generation that's gonna be alive when Jesus comes. And so that's how, why we really talk about the end times. We look for that blessed hope. There's been a lot of generations that talks about being alive when Jesus comes. And so we see events come and go and they come around and sometimes we mistake local tragedies for the big trouble that hasn't come yet, but it will. The great tribulation, I'm looking at others who are talking. Um, if I'm missing somebody, let me know. I saw a couple of people raising their hand. I'm looking at the chat section to see where you are. And if you have, um, you can, you can talk. I think I, did Ron Johnson, did I get you or you want to say something again? I, yes, sir. I wanted to ask a, um, just one more question if you, if, if I could. Sure, go ahead. Um, the, you mentioned the liturgical ca calendar and the Jewish calendar. Yes. Um, which, those you know. Were, those were clues. Those sir? Were clues those were clues, by the way. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, I was curious to, as, as far as, you know, you, you mentioned the Julian, the liturgical, and then the Jewish calendar. Right. As a believer, would is there one calendar that you would put more pre um, precedence on? 
like if you were to kind of interpret eschatology or something like that, would you be would you fixate upon the Jewish calendar because yes. of those divine appointments? Very much so. The calendar events where Jesus, the Lord is operating on those feast days. That's why he set them up. You think he just wanted to set up a good time in the wilderness for them with seven important feast days? These were signs. They were very important. Remember what Jesus said when he came. He said, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. There was a difference. People misunderstand. What Jesus fulfilled was ceremonial law. But the moral code still stands. And see what we see in terms of fulfilling the ceremonial, the ceremonial law, he did that on Passover. Why do you think everything consummated according to Galatians 4 and 4? in the fullness of time for him to die on Passover. At the Passover feast, that's when Jesus is crucified on the cross. So we have the Passover of God passing over them in Egypt with the Passover, with the Passover lamb on the 10th plague. We have the ultimate Passover lamb taking away our sins. So there's something going, and then the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens on Pentecost. Two Jewish feasts that are phenomenally important in Jesus dying on Passover, the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost. I rest my taste. Uh, Joe Figaro. You can unmute your mic and uh, I can, I see your hand. If you unmute your mic, you can talk. Thank you, thank for all the encouragement for all of you putting something in the chat section. I hit somebody up there, but I guess they don't wanna, they don't wanna talk, they got their hand up and they wanna talk. Someone asked, do I have a guide to go along with the teaching? Um, no, I don't right now. I will probably prepare one, though. Um, Bishop. Yes, great. How you doing? Fine, how you doing? Uh, good, 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 good. Good. I uh, am just grateful uh, for you sharing tonight. And uh, I just wanted to uh, emphasize how blessed I have been uh, just being with you in the development of this. And uh, it's exciting uh, for what you just mentioned. And I think that that's so important uh, in regards to uh, mixing current events with prophetic events. And so uh, I just want to thank you so much for the uh, insight, especially in light of us being in the season of Advent, uh, the return of the Lord is, is most appropriate. So thank you so much, sir. Yes, this is the second Sunday of Advent. and. Uh... The reason why um, that's um, Bishop Sharon, he's uh, part of this teaching. He's going to be a part of what we're going to be doing in this teaching. And so I want to uh, make sure that we see him in this teaching this hour. He's going to be a part. And the Lord's going to bless him as he's helping me through some of these events. You can hear him on the Anchor podcast. Him and I are discussing the end time events. And we discussed some things on those podcasts that I didn't discuss in this video session. So you may want to go to the podcast and look at the comment and be a part of the conversation that I gave there. 
Um, someone asked in the chat, because we are Gentiles, a kindred to Israel, will there be a movement by the Gentiles like Israel going back home? <laughs> going, uh, going back home to Africa. I guess there is a lot of movement of an Afrocentric. Right now, there is a move of a lot of um, Africans. And by the way, one of the oldest churches in the world happens to be Africa. Again, the oldest church in the world is a Coptic church, um, Ethiopia. So it is an African church. We have the Coptic church, we have the Orthodox church, and we have the Catholic church, which is the Western church. Those are the three main branches of Christianity. Within the Catholic church, there is the Protestant church. We come out of the Catholic church because we protested the Catholic church and Western, but we are the Western church. There's the Eastern church, which is the Orthodox church and the Coptic church, which is the oldest church because you'll see that in the book of Acts, the church in Antioch. Antioch is in Egypt and the Coptic church is the oldest. Yeah, there's a lot to say. All Gentiles itself, Gentiles are so adverse. But what we see in Revelation chapter seven, verse 11, that when you see that gathering of the, of the number in Revelation, that it comes out of every nation, kindred, and tongue on the face of the earth, that number is going to redeem that comes up. What is interesting is that they're giving you another clue in Revelation that whatever John hears, he doesn't ever see what he hears. He hears one thing and sees another. And it becomes so interesting of the symbolism that goes forth in Revelation. There are 54 sevens in Revelation, 54 sevens. And then there are four sets of sevens. Uh, sevens is number completeness, as we know, not a liberal number, it's a completeness. And things go around in the circle to go over and over and over and over again to tell us what it is. Revelation is actually covered from chapter 1 to chapter 12. Then chapters 13 to 22 go back to fill in what we see in chapters 1 to chapter 12. So it becomes a reversal of things that goes on and on when we see this whole events coming about. But it's going to be interesting when I show you some of the events in Revelation. But for the next two weeks, we're going to go deeper into this overview of the end times. I want to go in depth of the background of some of the viewpoints of the end time that we're going to pro and con them, talk about what may be right about them, what may be wrong about them. Um, this idea of a two-stage rapture uh, and revelation with Jesus doesn't take place or doesn't have any significance until 19, or rather 1830. So before 1830, there is, there is just, it's just not there. And so we see this whole thing coming about from there and we, we wrap it up from that standpoint. And so we see things coming about and beginning to happen. I hope you've enjoyed this teaching. 